Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hello and welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 151. Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we've got a couple of great conversations on the podcast for you this week. Coming up a little bit later on, former uh, Clinton senior advisor, journalist and historian Sidney Blumenthal will talk with us about Abraham Lincoln. He's three-fifths of the way through what will be a five-volume series on Abraham Lincoln's life, and we'll talk about some of the high points of the years leading up to the presidency with Sidney Blumenthal later in the podcast. But we begin things by visiting with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, great friends of our show and the podcast who are back at it. Now, the last time they collaborated was on the powerful series on the Vietnam War. They're back at it with a brand new one entitled Hemingway that premieres April 5th on the stations of PBS. We had a chance to talk about all of it with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Ken and Lynn, thank you both for coming back and joining us once again to talk about this uh, remarkable three-part series that premieres on April 5th on PBS on Hemingway. And before we talk about Hemingway, first, congratulations on the the inspired choice to have our friend Jeff Daniels with the Michigan Connection serve as the voice of Hemingway. Yeah, you know, I've known Jeff for, you know, almost 30 years and and it was Lynn's idea and it was like oh yeah great Michigan of course yeah (laughs) he 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 was such a gift to the project um it was a just a thrill to work with him I've we've admired him for a long time and he just really got deep into the words and brought some incredible meaning for all of us to really understand who Hemingway was and what he was trying to do So how great a challenge was it to find the truth behind the myth when Hemingway himself was so instrumental in adding to that mythology? You know, almost all of us build some sort of facade that protects us from the world that we permit only ourselves or the most intimate people to do that. So this is a not unfamiliar thing. With Hemingway, though, it's outsized. It's so gigantic that in some ways... It doesn't take much to pierce it because his own writing does that. The people around him do it and the the scholars who've spent their life pursuing it. It is a formidable facade. It is a formidable mask. But it's so interesting that that mask of a kind of what we'd say toxic masculinity actually was rooted in real things that he loved. He loved to fish in nature. He loved deep sea fishing. He loved shooting wild game and shooting in the West. And so it It comes from real experiences, but then he understood at some point that this was a way to present himself to the world. He began to embellish those stories, and essentially the fish got bigger the farther away from the Michigan lake uh, they got. And then then it runs into trouble for him. And so for us, this is just gifts. It's, it's, it's what makes dimension to a story. It isn't simple. If you can blow up what our preconceived notion is and present something more interesting, and it turns out there's lots of gender fluidity and curiosity and androgyny and interest in how the other sex is, it's, it, it makes for, I think, a much fuller 
and more complicated and we would say in the end much more interesting portrait of Hemingway if you're liberated from the tyranny of just that macho brawler drinker guy. Lynn, was there any concern at all because everybody has this preconceived notion of Hemingway that that maybe you would get into this and perhaps not like your subject? You know, even people I love, I sometimes hate. And I think you, we don't necessarily need to like him all the time. I think he, he there are lots of, there are many aspects of him, Hemingway, the person that are not likable. He's a very difficult person. He's not nice to people all the time. He treats the people even closest to him sometimes really badly. And yet he left behind this extraordinary body of work. And so I think what we hope by the end of the project, at least speaking for myself, I felt that I got to know him really well and care about him as a person and an artist and understand his failings and his limitations and his flaws and his struggles, his demons. I mean, he really suffered terribly from some pretty serious afflictions, mental illness, alcoholism, and self-doubt. And so you see all of this playing out. And by the end of the film, I think we hope that people will have some compassion for him, appreciation for his work and understanding of his flaws. Compassion without ever letting him off the hook for those things that he did, and that's really important. Um, we're not there to, on 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 the one hand, sort of say, "Oh, well, it's complicated and excuse it." It's inexcusable. I mean, I made a film on Thomas Jefferson, in which you know it was promoted by one of the talking heads that he might be the man of the last millennium, and he might be. Um, but he's also a slave owner that never saw fit in his lifetime to free slaves, wrote our catechism and never saw the hypocrisy or the contradiction. Lynn and I made a film on the arguably the greatest American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, who's not a very pleasant person either. And so none of this requires us forgiving or, or saying it's all right. It actually is interesting, as Lynn suggests, that that even those closest to us um, drive us crazy and up the wall. And, and uh, we're all very lucky that we're not super close to Ernest Hemingway. Well, and, and one of those who certainly drove him up the wall was his mother, Grace, who was such a presence in this story. She never let her children forget that she had sacrificed her career for them and essentially cast Ernest out of the family, out of the house at 21. And yet, as you point out, he became the child who was most like her. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating relationship. And, you know, it's one that he drew a lot from, and he was scathing in his critique of her later in his life and blamed her for his father's suicide. And and yet he was really a lot like her, as you said. And so, you know, and she inspired him to be an artist, frankly. She was a, uh, she had at one time had been an opera singer and she taught music and she really, you know, taught him to dedicate his life to art. And so it's, it's a very interesting relationship that he sometimes oversimplified in his life. He took care of her the rest of his, her adult life even though he said he hated her. So, you know, it is very, very complicated. We tend to jump to the wives, the four wives, all very interesting, all very complicated, all very fraught, and all he shows aspects to uh, all of them that aren't very good. Um, but I think understanding, as you have, Rich, the centrality of the mom and also of the nurse that jilts him mm. uh, from his World War One experience. You know, he's a teenager and severely wounded as an ambulance driver um, serving the Italian army and the, and the Italian Alps. And it's a horrifying situation and he's hospitalized for months and he falls in love with his nurse and apparently she reciprocated enough for him to believe that they are eventually going to get married and then sends him a dear 
earnest letter. It's that that in some ways sets both his mother and and Agnes set him up for a kind of wariness. He wants to be in love. He is a lover of life, a passionate lover and observer of life. But it also makes him pretty gun shy. And he's, you know, always in a very interesting ways and always different, sabotaging aspects of all four of his future um, uh, marriages. It was a fascinating story of how his mother would twin Ernest and his sister, uh, dressing them the same uh, sometimes as girls, sometimes as boys. And how interesting that that this writer who's perceived as one of our most masculine writers, if that's a thing, uh, that those blurred gender lines stayed with him forever and that he finally in that fourth marriage found a release of sorts for that. Absolutely. Yeah, that, this is probably one of the most surprising things that we learned about Ernest Hemingway and working on the project. You know, during that time when he was born around the turn of the last century, it was not uncommon for boys, little babies to be dressed in girls clothes. But she did carry it on till he was a bit older than was normal. And he had all these sisters. He was surrounded by women growing up. And I think he it seems clear he was very interested in what it was like to be a girl. I mean, there's just, it's a fascination and he wanted to have his hair grow long and have his wives cut their hair short and play different gender roles in bed. Some of it not explicitly clear to us what they did, but um, it's a lifelong fascination, um, which he finally wrote about in fiction in the Garden of Eden, which was not published till after he um, had died. But it's clearly a through line that you can find and we agree is very surprising. We think about the public persona of Ernest Hemingway. One of the great joys of this film is the contribution made by Edna O'Brien, and, and she suggests that yeah, maybe maybe Hemingway got a, a bad rap as this purveyor of toxic masculinity. Certainly, as she says, in up in Michigan, he is able to see the world from a woman's perspective. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, uh, I guess in our tabloid sensibilities, we're drawn to the the gender bending things and our and the gender fluidity for this hyper masculine guy. Um, but I think the positive aspect of it, and and there's nothing wrong with the other. It's not negative. It's just it is. Um, the, the positive artistic aspect is that he got under the skin and into these uh, female characters in spectacular ways, not just in Up in Michigan, but in Hills Like White Elephants and, and throughout uh, the novels. The, the women characters are, are, for the most part, extraordinarily well uh, drawn. And, and as Edna suggests later on, it's what you remember uh, about his most celebrated novel, A Farewell to Arms, which is about war, but... It's ultimately about a woman dying in childbirth, and that's a pretty uh, spectacular accomplishment. And I think, you know, for us to be able to put it in the context of the biographical information we have and the later biographical revelations, um, I think that makes for a good story. I think, you know, for a lot of, we hear a lot, I think people, many people, maybe especially women, you know, can't get past Hemingway's public persona and, you know, we think that's a problem because once you get past the persona, you see the sensitivity and the vulnerability in his work that universal themes are being explored in a deep way with enormous compassion, empathy for everybody. Um, and it's just his public posturing and sort of macho bravado just hides that from us. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why we made the film is to be able to really explore that and see beneath that and beyond and it. it. And it, and it is so interesting how many people in our film, uh, writers, but also scholars, 
are women and drawn to Hemingway. Mm. So there's something uh, about the unmasking of that very superficial uh, bravado, as Lynn says, um, and getting at something substantial uh, beneath the surface. And that's all of Hemingway. I think that's the whole key to him. There's stuff on top in the writing that's very spare, but it's really what's unsaid that is uh, spectacularly important, what's implied in his in his very spare writing. And so too in his life, there's this sort of kind of obvious and, and, and wearisome uh, facade, but it's a mile wide and only an inch deep. And when you get below that, you're in new worlds that we're only now finding comfort in being able to talk about. And the fact that these are going on with a, you know, with a, uh, a writer from 100 years ago is, you know, pretty interesting. We're talking with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Hemingway premieres April 5th on PBS. Uh, he created certainly a new style of writing, but that style also owed a debt to music. Can you explain the connection, well, first of all, between Bach and A Farewell to Arms? <laughs> yeah. No, you mean that we playing Bach under the reading of the opening of A Farewell to Arms? Yeah, that's a pretty conscious thing. His mom, among the many things that she left him, including this kind of melodramatic personality, which he adopted in full, um, was, as Lynn said, a, an opera singer and music teacher. And, you know, she familiarized him not just with the discipline of the artist, but with Bach in particular. And he was drawn to the counterpoint and repetition, repetition and counterpoint, as we say in the film. And when you begin to hear the cadence of some of Hemingway's writing, particularly the opening of A Farewell to Arms, and you understand that it's married to an early accidental teenage experience working as a cub reporter on the Kansas City, Kansas City Star, known for its spare style and its, its admonition against adjectives and being very straightforward and putting you in the action. And you set this guy into threatening situations in nature, but more importantly, the things that human beings do, like war, you've got this, you know, you're beginning to understand the pieces coming together. And when our narrator and um, Jeff, uh, Jeff uh, reading uh, as Hemingway and Edna reading parts of that opening of A Farewell to Arms, you hear it, you understand it, you get the rhythm and the pace of it, and you begin to understand that in fact all art is a form of music. I mean, Wynton Marsalis calls it the art of the invisible. And it's the only art form that is invisible. And so what's so interesting is, is that I think my brother once told me is that filmmaking, but I think it applied to all other arts, filmmaking aspires to be music. You know, when it dies and goes to heaven, you hope it's music. <laughs> and I think that Hemingway got to that very, very early on. And what he writes and the reason why he endures is because it's music. Just, you know, if you, if you, don't, uh, if you don't believe that, pick up a Hemingway short story and read it out loud to someone you love and just listen to the, to the, to the pace and the rhythm of it. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it really belies this macho image to think of him quietly at home listening to the records. He had an incredible record collection. He had a lot of Bach. He had Benny Goodman. He had Duke Ellington, Fats Waller. His record collection is intact because he left his home in Cuba um, when Castro took over and they had to leave quickly. So you can see all his records there. And, you know, he's a, on the one hand, this 
you know, Hunter Fisher boxer brawler. On the other hand, he wants to sit at home and listen to music and read a book and think about ideas and admire great art. And, you know, to integrate those two ideas, I think the music is kind of the key. I'd love to imagine him sitting at home listening to some of the beautiful Bach pieces that we have in the film. So many artistic people were obviously drawn to him, but it went far beyond that. I'm, I'm curious, uh, why do you think somebody like uh, a Buck Lanham was so drawn to Hemingway? You know, he, he blurred the line between the correspondent and, and the soldier. And I think in the case of World War II, he was drawn inexorably to picking up a gun and firing it in complete opposition to the Geneva Conventions and against the law. And, you know, he probably should have gotten into a lot of trouble for it, but he was a, he was a combatant. He was not um, writing about it in the Ertgen Forest. He was a combatant. And I think he was drawn outwardly to those um, kind of macho guys. And that's not to say that somebody like Buck Lanham doesn't have a sensitive and uh, completely sympathetic side, which he did because Hemingway confessed a lot of feelings uh, to him in correspondence. Um, but I think what we're saying is that don't we too often as a culture, particularly today where everything's binary, on or off, you know, good or bad, don't we also presume that if you're this, you cannot also be that? Mm. And Hemingway is just a very loud example of the fact that you have this macho guy with an extraordinarily feminine sensibility and sensitivity and vulnerability as a writer and an artist in the midst of this crass self-promotion. And, and, you know, that's what happens. The more you crassly self-promote, the more you're pointing out how insecure you actually feel, how tenuous your you, you think your grip is on in that. He didn't have anything to worry about, but he did, and that makes it interesting. And Buck Lanham, the presumption is some hard-bitten soldier can only be that, when in fact, it's just not the case. And I, I like the idea that that in our work, and we've tried to do this for the last 40 years, that we're able somehow to at least um, put a dent in the presumptions of one thing, something being either one thing or the other, when in fact, more often than not, and in a gross way with Hemingway, it's neither and both. He did so much damage to himself with, with alcohol and, and his lifestyle, but he also, as you point out, suffered Horrific injury at first uh, in World War One, but also through uh, an astonishing number of concussions and then even surviving plane crashes on back-to-back on -back days. How much did those traumatic injuries, do you think, contribute to the end of his life? Um, it's hard to say what exactly you know, the factors were that ended with him taking his own life at the end of his life and at the very young age in his 60s, but he did, as you said, suffer so many different brain injuries. It sort of suggests a bit of risk-taking living on the edge in his personal life and just throwing himself headlong into things. And when you do that, you often do get hurt. And whether it's going to war or riding around on motorcycles or driving cars fast, I mean, any number of things can happen, you can do that can cause you to get hurt. But he suffered repeated head injuries and there's a um, a psychiatrist um, who sort of studied all this and lined everything up and we interviewed him for the film. But, you know, it's not the only factor. There's mental illness, there's serious depression in the family, there's alcoholism, there's self-medicating. So it's a whole constellation of um, 
both behaviors and vulnerabilities and just accidents that happened. And so it's kind of hard to unpack, but at the end of his life, uh, it's just truly, truly tragic, almost Shakespearean. It is that, and, and any one of those things could have done it. Right. And the right. fact that it was just all of those things is is kind of an avalanche. The fact that he survived as long as he did. I think people in New England are aware of Junior Seau, who played with the Patriots briefly, right. who was a fine defensive and who through the concussions and the CTE that resulted from those concussions of playing football took his life at a at a way early age. If you add up the serious concussions that Hemingway had, I think we say nine or eleven, and there could be more than that. And that could have done it. But then, as Lynn says, there's mental illness in the family. There's alcoholism. There's depression. There's self-medication. There's all of these things. Uh, you know, the one of our commentators in the film says that you think about this middle-class um, Midwestern family, uh, eight people, uh, a father and a mother and six kids, and at least, as he said in an ominous way, at least four end their life by their own hand. After the poor reviews for uh, Across the River and Into the Trees, he, he certainly hit a low point, but a visit from uh, a young woman who became a muse of sorts for him inspired him to create one of his greatest works, uh, The Old Man in the Sea, which I was astonished to learn he wrote in just eight weeks. How much of that was, do you think, also an effort to secure his legacy? Who knows? I mean, it's just uh, that novel is so bad. And, and Adriana, the woman you're talking about, was the muse for that novel, you know, and and it's it's really kind of um, embarrassing. There are parts of it that are kind of unreadable. And we cite a few uh, instances of it, but she does come. And I think that it, it reminds you how fragile and tenuous the artist's um, ability. I mean, they, he's really amazing because of his discipline as a writer, but anything can skew that the alcohol, clearly the believing the self-promotion, but her presence permits him whatever grace, uh, to do it. I, I don't know if you can attribute a kind of consciousness to it. He certainly knew he wanted to get better. He certainly tried to take in care of himself and not drink as much as he did and to lose weight and, uh, you know, stop eating carbs, you know, do a diet, all the kind of diet stuff we'd recognize now. And he then took an old Esquire article and reworked it into what many consider one of his ma masterpieces. And uh, the, you know, how much Adriana had to do with it, how much his own self-discipline, how much the fact that the story existed and he needed to flesh it out, so to speak, because it's about the defleshing of something. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard to say, just like with the whatever did him in, you can't really point to it. You just know there are a lot of competing factors and you're kind of really surprised he lasted as long as he did. Indeed. I, you know, it, it surprises me to see he's worried about his legacy. He's worried about his reputation. He wants to be rep remembered as a great, great writer for all time. And that's something that he's constantly aware of from his pretty early age. So you can only imagine after writing a pretty terrible book that he thought was great across the river into the trees, you know, wanting to do something to kind of really prove to the world he still had it and that he was worth, you know, that he would earn this immortal status, which he actually did. I mean, it is pretty yeah. miraculous. I don't know where he found the, the clarity to do that, given where he was at. It, it is shocking and in a good way. 
And then, and then you have the great works of the twenties and, and, and I suppose thirties, and then you do it again in the fifties in this small uh, novella and the Nobel prize committee comes calling and uh, he gets what he called the Swedish thing. And then, <laughs> you know, there is the literary immortality right there, right there. But how he pulled that rabbit out of the hat, I, I don't think we'll ever know. And you, you see this agonizing when you see the film him an nbc crew comes and he's he's so nervous in front of a camera he has yes. to read the read the, cre- the 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 cue cards and he's reading the punctuation which looks like madness and then a couple of days later he writes one of the most beautiful passages about accepting uh the nobel prize that is that that he speaks he's not got the glare of the camera and the anxiety that that apparently produced in him and it's a beautiful, you know, uh, as, as Edna says, a prayer. He could be so cruel to wives, children, uh, professional colleagues. There's a, a remarkable story about his response to reading the galleys of From Here to Eternity. Why does it seem to be such a common tale that great artists cause collateral damage to those closest to them? Mm. Wow. You know, I guess... You could say, I think Mary Carr says in the film that all great writers are to some degree narcissistic, not narcissists per se, but just you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that what you say is important. You have to believe that what you need to do is the most important thing. And that, you know, just just having that kind of focus and self-absorption to some degree probably means that the people around you are going to pay the price in some way. And then, you know, each case is its own particular problem, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I don't think all artists are that. We are, we are reminded quite frequently when they are. Mm. And so we tend to think that it skews in that direction, a Picasso, a Hemingway, uh, people of, of such great magnitude that we presume that's the case. And it's not, you know, uh, it's just not, um, and so I think it, uh, it's not a necessity for success. And I think too often booze and other things are, are the, the solve that tries to deal with the vulnerability that comes along with that narcissism, right? And um, how you deal with it, how you acknowledge it is, is another, is the test of the human being and not necessarily the test of the artist. In this case, the lines get super blurred because he was everything was so autobiographical. Everything was so rooted in experiences. The number of time that cesarean sections and difficult pregnancies and, and things come up, having been the son of a doctor accompanying his dad on some of these horrific, um, uh, you know, calls out into the night, you, you begin to realize that the, his human experience is completely intertwined with his experiences of his characters. And that's true of many, many, many writers. You write about what you know, and that's the best writing. But I don't think it is a prerequisite for a great artist to be um, necessarily as cruel uh, as Hemingway could be. He reached out to his first wife, Hadley, a very late, uh, right toward the end of his life. Do you think that any of his wives were the love of his life? I think each of his wives was the love of his life for a certain time. That's that's how it felt. Looking back, he some he did feel that maybe it was Hadley, and at the time when he was first with her, he certainly felt that way, but I think he felt that way about Pauline and about Martha, and maybe to a lesser degree, but still to some degree about Mary. So he just, 
seemed to me he was in love with that feeling of falling in love, especially falling in love and then being in love. And then, you know, it doesn't really last in that same way. And so then he had to find that feeling again. And at the end of his life, with all the confusion and the mental illness and probably maybe some dementia, he went back to thinking about his first marriage and what had been lost with the decisions he had made to, you know, have an affair and leave his wife, um, for which he blamed the woman that he set, married, his second wife, Pauline, instead of himself. But he did look back and feel that something terrible had been lost when he I, broke up with I, I think Lynn is exactly, exactly right. I think that there was something on, upon reflection, no matter how filtered that was by some of these tragic demons that are, are beginning to overtake him, that there was something clean about that and that the artifice that began to really manifest itself in his life comes after that. And so I think he could conveniently for himself say, ah, the idealized person was the first one and that, you know, he he made... Uh, a great deal of that and, and in a movable feast, you know, as we say, begins to settle some scores that didn't need to be settled and has a rather um, kind of simplistic version of what went on between his first wife, Hadley, and his second wife, Pauline, that made Pauline the villainous and and Hadley, the long-suffering person. And I think he's really speaking more about his own regrets and, and future actions than he is about any one of them. I think Lynn's right. I think he just, he was a butterfly flitting from one kind of new thing to another. We all know how the story is going to end, but it doesn't make it any less painful. When we get nope. there in episode three, he had packed so much living into those 61 years, as someone says, he so loved the world. But I found myself feeling that sense of helplessness, uh, helplessness that I'm sure family and friends felt. Was there also among them a sense of inevitability? Absolutely not, actually. Yeah. I, I think um, there's maybe a little bit of denial of how sick he was, how very sick he was. And so, and also the in unwillingness to really focus on that he's suffering from serious, serious mental illness, psychotic depression, and all the other things we've been talking about. So uh, to me, it feels much more like this will just take care of itself. He'll get better and not fully recognizing how determined he was to end his life and how, and what that means about how sick he was. And so, um, and maybe an unconscious desire on the part of his fourth wife, Mary, to just be free of the angst of trying to help him which was excruciating for her. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, you know, in hindsight, you know, all the warnings are there. We've set it all up in that way. But I think denial's the key word. If you don't, if you don't take these things seriously, and he's Papa who knows everything and can get everything done, uh, the behavior is right. He's already alienated a lot of people in his life. He's increasingly alone, increasingly paranoid. But uh, the people closest, and uh, no blame to them, uh, don't really have the ability to intervene in the ways that should have been intervened if if that was going to be stopped. And I'm not sure that it it could have been stopped. So it, it's, I think learning the dimensions of the Hemingway story rather than just the superficial myth makes that tragedy uh, all the sadder, all the sadder, because you begin to see the accumulated weight and you begin to, to have a compassion for him as he wished 
to extend to the people who populated his fiction and his nonfiction. And I think you do do that, even in the face of all of the negative aspects to him. And that compassion then, I think, makes us in our, in our own way, at whatever level, suffer too for what he's going through. And then, of course, for the, his ultimate um, uh, solution for it, which is not a solution whatsoever. Well, you do a remarkable job telling this story. It is an incredible story with uh, uh, new information that uh, many people will be, I think, surprised to learn along the way. And I think the fact that you're so unsparing and so honest in, in telling the full story of Hemingway actually uh, makes us not only appreciate the art, but the artist even more. Yeah, I, I hope so, Rich. I, ho- I really hope. I, I think that's exactly it. I don't know why we sort of feel that in order to like, they have to be perfect. In order to dislike, they have to be uniformly bad. I mean, no, no, nothing is like that. And so it's all shades of gray. And my goodness, the, the, the gray here is, is extensive. Well, thank you both so much. It really was uh, an incredible documentary. I can't wait to watch it again live uh, in April. Thank you. That's very kind, Rich. Talk to you again (laughs) next time. Muhammad Ali coming in September. We're looking forward to that. Thanks again, Ken and Lynn. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Ken Burns, Lynn Novick on Downtown Hemingway premieres on Monday, April 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And I would be looking forward to it if Ken Burns and Lynn Novick weren't involved because... I think Hemingway is just uh, such a fascinating, not only literary figure, but he's just one of the giants of the 20th century. He meant so much to Americans, uh, the American ideal of literature in, in the 20th century. And, and in many ways, for some people, the American ideal of what a, a man ought to be in the 20th century. Mm. But as we learned from our conversation with Ken and Lynn, and we'll learn more about that in watching the documentary, not everything was as it appears. So uh, very interesting. And, of course, when Ken and Lynn are working on it, you know it's going to be great. We are always so grateful to, to both of them for making time for us here on the podcast. When we return, we'll talk about another giant, Abraham Lincoln. Sidney Blumenthal, who has been writing about him for several years now, joins us next after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. There was a man you know a long time ago. They say he never had a pretty face. But he was a man so tall he could love the great and small. He walked into history and there he took his place. Wow. Digging deep into the archives there. <laughs> That's Fess Parker, you say? Yes, an uh, album he released back in the 60s that sort of looked at a bunch of American historical figures. Wow. I-, I love it. Well, I don't know how accurate Fess Parker's rendition was, but we, we appreciate it nonetheless. Uh, our next guest has been researching and writing about Abraham Lincoln for several years. He has completed three volumes of an eventual five-volume history of Abraham Lincoln, the most recent of which is All the Powers of Earth, 
He's a former senior advisor to President Bill Clinton, journalist and author, Sidney Blumenthal, with us on Downtown. I'm so excited to talk to you about uh, Lincoln. I have, I'm a Lincoln fan, and I've read a lot of books. And it's a credit to the incredible amount of research that you've done that you're able to reveal new things uh, about Lincoln. And I, I'm curious, how much time did it take? How much research did you put into creating the first three of what will eventually be a five-volume set? Well, I've been working since 2008 on these books, so uh, I can't keep track. Um, uh, it's now, I guess, 13 years uh, that I've been working on um, what has become a five-volume study of Lincoln's political life. I had no idea when I fell down this rabbit hole that I would not be out in 2021 and still be deep into it. Well, I want to focus primarily on the most recent volume, All the Powers of the Earth, but but briefly back to the beginning. And a revelation to me was the idea that the young Abraham Lincoln thought of himself in many ways as a slave. Can you explain that? In 1856, when Lincoln assumed a new identity as a member of this new political party called the Republican Party, which was, some thought was a very radical political party, politically. Um, he had, Lincoln had been a lifelong Whig, and he had, um, by 1856, joined this new party. And he went out campaigning in a presidential year for the party. And on the stump, he said, uh, I used to be a slave. Uh, he joked, paused. Um, they let me uh, practice law. But he meant it about uh, being a slave, and it goes back to his um, to his or his uh, father was a poor dirt farmer from Kentucky who uh, left Kentucky uh, and went uh, across the Ohio River into Indiana because uh, Kentucky was a slave state. Uh, his uh, his uh, parents had belonged to a small emancipationist. Um, primitive Baptist church. They were opposed to slavery, and he was forced to compete for, with slaves for wages. But when they got to Indiana, they were very poor, and um, young Abe Lincoln was um, sent out as an indentured servant by his father, who uh, garnished his uh, wages. And Lincoln thought of himself, he said, as, um, as a slave, his father's slave. Uh, and um, what's unusual about this and important is um, that uh, Lincoln himself came up from poverty. He felt himself to be a poor, oppressed boy. And his statements about slaves and slavery are very different from many others because they often take the point of view of the slave. Uh, and are very empathetic about the condition. Um, he made a statement um, uh, once about uh, uh, the slave being in a cell with a, um, uh, and the keys uh, being held to the cell were uh, dispersed. There were a hundred keys dispersed to a hundred men in a hundred different places, and the slave has no way of escaping. And everything is arrayed against him, all the powers of Earth, which is a title I've taken uh, for my third volume. 
And it was Lincoln, of course, who broke that power. To anyone who might suggest that Lincoln was somehow above politics, you point out that nothing could be further in the truth, that he viewed the world in many ways through a political lens. Lincoln was a consummate politician, and he was a politician to the marrow of his bones. And um, at the end of everything, um, uh, after he achieved um, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment and won the war, there were radical abolitionists who had known him for many, many years and they reflected back and they said, you know, he compromised, he, you know, did this, he did that, but only he could have done it. It took a politician to be able to do this of his level. Politician. And he learned it from the bottom up. Uh, you know, his first position was uh, working in a, as in a, turned a job in the post office in his early 20s. He ran for the state legislature. He was the floor leader of the Whigs in the state legislature in Illinois. And uh, he served one term of the House um, in the House of Representatives in Washington, um, ran for the Senate, of course, famously against uh, uh, Stephen A. Douglas and held their famous debates, um, uh, and was um, considered to be on the national stage by the time he was nominated as the Republican candidate for president in 1860 to be a little-known person. But in fact, he had spent virtually his entire adult life in politics and learning the ropes in every way. And uh, it was those skills and that talent combined with his intelligence and his principles that enabled him to become the Lincoln we know. Volume three is very much as Lincoln was shaped by that rivalry with Stephen Douglas, who uh, is a very interesting guy. He was a powerful figure on the national stage, proposed the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would repeal the Missouri Compromise. And those of us in Maine well acquainted with that, it was the agreement that allowed Maine to become a state in 1820 and then for the time being kept that that tenuous balance between slave and free states. And in many ways, it was Douglas that provoked the attack on Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks. Yeah, you know, um, Douglas um, and Lincoln were rivals for decades before they ran against each other, uh, first for the Senate in 1858 in Illinois, and then for the presidency in 1860. And they knew each other well. Um, Lincoln used to say, you know, he, uh, Douglas, who was called the little giant, who was barely five feet tall, and Lincoln, of course, was 6'3", he, he, uh, Lincoln said, he's a colossus, and I, you know, we just walked underneath his legs. Uh, Douglas was uh, the most powerful person from Illinois, in, an incredibly uh, powerful senator, uh, and uh, he had uh, an overweening ambition to become president, which is why he um, created the Kansas-Nebraska Act, engineered it, because he wanted he, he had to organize that uh, that territory, which hadn't been organized, um, in order to build a transcontinental railroad, which he believed would be the great accomplishment that would make him president. And as a result of that, he opened up the territory to the question of whether or not it would be slave or free, and people fought in it, and it became bleeding Kansas. And 
uh, there was a virtual civil war there, and it blew up um, the Whig Party, and it blew up the Democratic Party, and made possible the rise of Abraham Lincoln, drew him into politics again. Um, Douglas, uh, it's important to note, was a, um, a great demagogue, and he was a racial demagogue, and he did not hesitate to use every aspect of racial politics uh, in his campaigns and every smear, and he used them against Lincoln um, in the 1858 uh, Senate campaign. And Lincoln um, really had to cope with um, uh, these racial demagoguery uh, and uh, these attacks, these smears. Um, and the, uh, the, the very idea like, uh, that Douglas said that Lincoln, this is the worst thing you could say about anyone, that Lincoln was for Negro rights. That's what Douglas said about Lincoln in 1858. Yeah, and for what and he called the— He didn't the, use the word Negro. No, and, and, and said that Lincoln was in favor of uh, what, what was then called the amalgamation of the races. Well, uh, race mixing, that's the worst thing that you can uh, accuse someone of. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the 1864 uh, presidential campaign, Lincoln's re-election campaign, his opponents invented the word miscegenation. It replaced amalgamation to accuse him of being in favor of the mixing of races, another smear uh, thrown against uh, Lincoln involving the exploitation of race. And Lincoln had to face that all the way through uh, his career and fend it off. He referred to, Lincoln was very obviously, uh, you know, aware of all this, and he referred to the debauchery of public opinion and <laughs> constantly warned against this, uh, this sort of thing. So if anyone thinks that we're uh, in our own uh, contemporary politics having to deal with, you know, racial um, smears and conflicts and so on. Well, um, there's a long history of it, and Abraham Lincoln had to deal with it, too. We're talking with Sidney Blumenthal here on Downtown. Well, indeed, what goes around comes around. I found it very interesting that uh, Douglas, among other things, said that Massachusetts was the real enemy of the state and the people because of their support for the Emigrant Aid Society. Uh well, the Emigrant Aid Society was uh, a group created um, uh, by Massachusetts people and actually uh, chartered by the Massachusetts legislature to send um, settlers to Kansas so that uh, they could populate it um, to become a free state as opposed to a slave state. And they encountered uh, people who wanted to make it a slave state, and uh, there was an armed conflict going on in Kansas as a result. And they were all blamed by the um, pro-slavery people and others uh, for um, creating and stoking uh, the conflict. It was They were called agitators. They were called every name in the book. And uh, Douglas uh, said that, you know, Massachusetts was uh, treasonous uh, for doing this. And uh, so it, it was, um, you know, politics were... Um, getting more and more heated, and it, um, you know, it, it ignited into a flame and led to a very bloody civil war. And even before that, uh, the violence of bleeding Kansas and then the uh, raid 
on Harper's Ferry, led by John Brown. And that that did some potential damage at the time to Lincoln's cause in a way. Well, John uh, Brown had, um, who was um, uh, 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 to call him ardently anti-slavery doesn't even begin to get at it. He was uh, a fanatic. Um, uh, He hated politics. He hated everybody in politics of whatever side, and he um, he came to Kansas uh, uh, to support the free state part. Although he regarded all of its leaders as sellouts, and um, he rampaged there, uh, became a legend, engaged in some murders, and then organized an attempt uh, at Harper's Ferry to create a slave insurrection. It was completely misbegotten, and he got himself – he killed some people, and he got himself – most of his people were killed, and he was captured and hung. Uh, And he became a great martyr for the abolitionists, but um, he damaged the anti-slavery cause in the moment. Uh, And ironically, it actually helped Lincoln because the presumptive candidate for the Republican Party in 1860 was William Seward the senator from New York, who uh, 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 was far more renowned than Lincoln. He was the front runner, and, uh, and he was anti-slavery. And um, the anti-Republican Party uh, uh, um, movement uh, smeared Seward with John Brown. And as a result of that, there was a, a, a question in the Republican convention that took place in Chicago in 1860, of looking for a fresh face. And um, Lincoln had some advantage uh, in that. And uh, it, it's, it's ironic because, of course, Lincoln, as he said, had always been naturally anti-slavery uh, himself. And uh, as a result of that, um, in part, Lincoln got the nomination. How important was Lincoln's speech at Cooper Union right in Seward's backyard? The Cooper Union address in February of 1860 was the beginning of Abraham Lincoln's political campaign. Um, he was uh, he was nationally known for his debates with uh, Stephen A. Douglas in 1858, which were reported in all the papers across the country and reproduced. And he had taken on the great Douglas. And in, uh, uh, there were a group of uh, Republicans in uh, New York who wanted to uh, uh, see uh, the prospective uh, candidates um, and hear them. They had never seen Lincoln. Um, uh, they'd never heard him, his voice. Uh, they had no idea. They'd only read these accounts in the newspaper. So they invited him to speak at Cooper Union. Um, they were also looking for an alternative to Seward. Uh, uh, Seward had been deeply engaged in New York political wars, which are as you know uh, <laughs> uh, acrimonious then as they are today. And if you think Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo you know, reflect, you know, a mutual contempt and hatred and that that's the standard. You, that's nothing compared to what went on in the 19th century in New York. And so they brought in um, uh, Lincoln, who they called, you know, they called, you know, the, the voice of the West. 
uh, and he uh, he was uh, appear- he had a slight Kentucky accent. He uh, did not look like uh, uh, he was very tall, ungainly, slightly awkward. Uh, his suit needed a little pressing, and um, he spoke in a high pitched voice and. Uh, when he started speaking, they thought he was something of a hayseed. But then they listened, and after a few minutes, they were enraptured. And by the end, they were all standing up and cheering because he delivered a speech that explained um, uh, how uh, the the Constitution could be used as an anti-slavery document and used to, um, in their present moment uh, for their purposes to stop the um, the uh, expansion of slavery to the territories. And he explained every single argument that was made against them. And he, un- he logically and humorously and brilliantly um, uh, articulated uh, how to rebuff them. And they had never seen anything like this, uh, particularly coming from a surprising figure like Lincoln, who they'd never heard before. And it had a, um, a startling impact on them and really helped make Lincoln into um, a figure that they all thought could be president. It's a very interesting story, too, about uh, while Lincoln was in New York, how they uh, got him to the office of photographer Matthew Brady to do a little public relations work. Well, you know, um, image making has been part of American politics from the beginning. Uh, And uh, the little group that had organized the Cooper Union Address um, decided that they would take Lincoln to Matthew Brady's photography studio before his speech. It was on Broadway. Uh, Matthew Brady was the most famous photographer of his day. Uh, no one really knew uh, what Lincoln looked like. There never, there had, there was not a real, you know, picture of him that had been in the press. Uh, they took him there. Brady arranged him for his photograph, made him look like a uh, a a, um, a handsome statesman with his hand on a book and a Roman column by his side and took this photograph, which was then reproduced after his nomination in Harper's Weekly, and then reproduced as a lithograph and distributed all around the country. And that was the picture that people had in of, of uh, Lincoln. And when it was all over, Lincoln said, it was Matthew Brady's picture that made me president. Now, how did our Hannibal Hamlin from Maine, who was a, a Seward man, end up on the ticket with Lincoln? Well, Hannibal Hamlin had been a Democrat and was from Maine uh, and uh, had been pursued. Um, And that's exactly why Lincoln needed him on the ticket. Lincoln needed a balanced ticket. He needed um, somebody from the other camp, and he also needed somebody from New England. And Hannibal Hamlin fit the bill. Uh, so, uh, it was the Lincoln Hamlin ticket that, uh, ran in 1860 and one, um, and, uh, 
You know, there were many smears against Hamlin. I've been uh, researching even now. Um, in uh, the 1860 campaign in South Carolina, the editor, the publisher of the uh, Charleston Mercury, the biggest newspaper there, uh, said that uh, Hannibal Hamlin was a Negro and had Negro blood in him. And uh, we're going to have a Negro president if um, Lincoln, and who he called a renegade, um, were elected. And uh, so, um, you know, this this sort of thing, uh, like the birther campaign that was conducted against uh, Barack Obama, has been going on for a long time. And Hannibal Hamlin was the object of it in 1860. Volume 3 ends with uh, the election and then the secession of South Carolina, which you point out for anybody who tries to frame it under revisionist history, it was pretty clear in their statement what secession was all about. Well, uh, they, uh, the, the ordinance of secession of South Carolina, which was the first one, followed by many others by the southern states, is very explicit. It says that they are seceding to defend and preserve slavery. That is the reason and uh, that uh, secession took place. They felt that with the election of uh, Lincoln um, that um, uh, slavery uh, was no longer safe, and so they withdrew from the United States. They separated. Um, Lincoln is attacked uh, in the, the first declaration of uh, South Carolina for secession, and his, um, his, he's quoted uh, they say, you know, we can't be safe when uh, Abraham Lincoln is elected. This is somebody who has said the country cannot exist half slave and half free, and who said that uh, that slavery must be put on the ultimate course of extinction, which is the, those were accurate quotes of Lincoln's. Um, and they decided that they would um, destroy the Union. And uh, the election of Lincoln himself was the precipitating factor. Uh, that led to secession. Uh, the first three books in what will eventually be five volumes, A Self-Made Man Wrestling with His Angel, All the Powers of Earth, fascinating reads and a remarkable uh, level of research and scholarship. Sidney Blumenthal, wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Rich. It's, it's been my pleasure. Sidney Blumenthal talking about Abraham Lincoln. Two more books to come in that series. And, and it's a credit to, to Sydney that I've read a lot about Lincoln, but I sure learned a lot from, uh, mm. from his three books. When you can do enough research to come up with new information on someone who has been documented as well and as frequently as Abraham Lincoln through the years, well, you're doing something right. Well, the time he has spent in his research is indicative of the amount of effort to, to un, it took to un earth that new material. Absolutely. Our thanks to Sidney Blumenthal and thanks to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Their series on Ernest Hemingway begins April 5th on PBS. And thanks to you for joining us this week. This is Downtown, the podcast. Downtown, the podcast.